Well, when you see these constellations of satellites, uh, constellation being a group of satellites that perform a mission together, uh, going up that are hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of satellites, um, it really is just increasing the probability of a collision. And collision avoidance is where we can help. Welcome to Tough Tech Today with Mayan and Miller. This is the premier show featuring trailblazers who are building technologies today to solve tomorrow's toughest challenges. Today we have Lewis Perna from Axion, and he's going to be telling us about his tough tech company where they're building electrospray thrusters to revolutionize in-space propulsion. Lewis is the co-founder and chief scientist of Axion. Welcome. Thanks, Forrest. Uh, really glad to be here. Uh, nice to meet you, Jonathan. Um, uh, I'm very excited to be on Tough Tech today. It's a really cool concept for a podcast, and uh, I always like talking about what we're working on at Axion. I guess let's start out and just tell the viewers um, what exactly is an electrospray thruster. We want to get people situated on this this cool revolution. Uh, what isn't an electrospray thruster, really? No. <laughs> um, so electrospray is a physical phenomenon that uh, occurs when you have a conductive liquid and you apply a high-strength electric field to its surface. And what happens is a breakdown of the surface tension and an emission of uh, charged particles. Um, electrospray uh, oftentimes refers more specifically uh, in the propulsion world to the mode of this phenomenon where you get ions coming out, uh, which are lighter weight than, for example, droplets. Um, this can be used as a propulsion system because when you emit those uh, charged particles in one direction, uh, Newton says that you get a reaction force in the opposite direction. So just like any other rocket, uh, mass being sent in one direction uh, pushes you in the opposite direction where you are an astronaut in space, uh, you're a spacecraft of some kind, Generally, we work with satellites. Uh, the cool thing about electrosprays that um, there's a lot of cool things that differentiate them from other propulsion technologies, but it happens at a very small scale. So we can make extremely small propulsion systems. Uh, and the way uh, that the ions are generated means that we actually run at very low power as well. So uh, we've been working on this at Axion uh, since 2015, uh, full-time. And my co-founder, Natalia, and I were grad students at MIT, uh, where we were first working on making this technology more suitable for uh, longer-term missions and spaceflight. So tell me about that, that experience in grad school. Like, uh, what was it like when you were sitting in lab and you were, you know, thought about maybe turning what you're working on into a company? Ah, uh, interesting. Uh, so the generation of the idea that this could really be a company uh, came out of the fact that as we were working on the technology, um, the advancements that the Space Propulsion Lab under Professor Lozano at MIT uh, was making, the commercial side of things and the government were coming to the lab and saying, this is a really compelling technology. The advantages that it um, promises for space operations are things that we want to start getting to customers, start getting to national defense. Uh, how can we get these thrusters onto our satellites? How can we buy them, really? And you know, MIT is a research university. It's not a, a for-profit business. So 
that demand couldn't really be met uh, beyond perhaps a demonstration mission, science mission uh, approach. So we said, hey, this is uh, exactly what you're looking for when you're looking at a business and saying, is there a market for it, right? We have people literally knocking on our door asking to uh, send this out into the field. So we created... Um, That's awesome. Yeah, we created a company to start working with MIT to license the IP around the technology uh, and start doing some business activities uh, as far back, I think, as 2012. Uh, and over a few years, as we were still working, um, focusing primarily as students, um, the uh, idea grew and the demand continued to grow, especially with the rapidly growing small satellite market. Um, and we eventually got into MIT's uh, Global Founders uh, Accelerator okay. and spent a summer doing that. And that's where I really got my crash course in what it means to start operating as a business. And uh, awesome. that's... And interestingly, it's now called Delta V. Yes, it is now called Delta V. Uh, I like it, were you the inspiration for that? They're like, like yeah, we had so, these yeah. great rocket guys. <laughs> we, uh, let's, let's rename this in honor of them. I, I was definitely, so when that transition was happening, my roommate at the time was uh, a, uh, an entrepreneur in residence at uh, the Martin Trust Center at MIT, and he was consulting me on how exactly they should write the phrase Delta V capitalization symbol use, because oh, wow. uh, <laughs> uh, I was his uh, rocket scientist roommate. <laughs> we as a, a species have been sending stuff to space for over half a century. What was it that when you and Natalia were starting to put your heads together on, on this opportunity, what, what's, was there an inflection point or something that changed um, in, in more recent times as you, to become what would, be, what would eventually evolve into Axion Systems? Um, I don't know that I can say the inflection point was really in our heads, but more um, in the collective zeitgeist of what's going on in the space industry, uh, in that, you know, all the way back as as far as uh, you know, Sputnik and Apollo days, um, are as a species sending things into space was um, accomplished. But it was you know we look back today and it looks very crude, um, and certainly looks very expensive to achieve some of those things. And uh, by today's standards, also extremely risky for the humans involved. Um, and as we have progressed uh, as a world that goes into space as a species that goes into space, things have gotten safer, more reliable, uh, certainly much more high tech, uh, and costs have come down, but really costs were still very high, uh, with, you know, SpaceX starting in the mid two thousands with the goal of bringing launch costs down and seeing the industry really benefit from people going in that direction. And at the same time, um, the, incorporation of low-cost electronics into uh, satellites and the idea that not every satellite needs to be uh, five nines reliability and um, super capable to do something meaningful uh, in space, whether it's demonstrate an experiment or educate students. Um, so, th so there was a shift from failure is not an option to, you know, I guess it's an option. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was characterized uh, during the shift as, you know, a lot of people talking about disposability of satellites. Like, you, sure. know, you build a satellite yeah. and a few years later, it doesn't matter that it burned up because it was cheap enough to replace. We've shifted back some from that, recognizing the 
value of an asset in orbit and in orbit mm-hmm. for an extended period of time uh, and the return on investment that extending that time represents. Um, but we were in undergrad and grad school mainly, I would say grad school, when that shift was really starting to become a reality on the commercial side of things. And uh, Planet, Spire, uh, at, at a certain point, Skylabs, um, OneWeb, and then eventually uh, Starlink and Kuiper all started emerging. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of those latter ones really, once Axion was already formed, but the, the path was there. And seeing that, okay, the industry is shifting and the electronics part is solved. The camera is solved except perhaps for figuring out how to get higher quality images. Um, from low cost assets, but a couple big problems still remained, which was high bandwidth communication and uh, Mm -hmm. propulsion and, uh, propulsion is out of those two, the one where probably the, by far fewer people are working on that challenge around the world Mm -hmm. and fewer experts exist in that area around the world. Communications, uh, you know, there's always people working on it. So uh, we saw Electrospray, this technology that is compact, efficient, lightweight, and the flavor of Electrospray that we were working on was mass manufacturable. So we could do it at scale for low cost, fit perfectly with this paradigm shift in the industry towards low cost assets in space, a high number of assets in space, and really, it just made complete sense to develop the technology to meet the needs of a changing business. So, so how did you know it was mass manufacturable? Because you know, pretty much, you know, before then, just been a, a lab sort of experiment. Is it just inherent in the design? Uh, it's it's inherent in the choice of manufacturing technologies. Um, okay. So we have uh, within the thruster chips. So the devices we make, we make in these little uh, chips that are about the size of um, a penny, I would say, is is accurate. They're square shaped. Wow. Uh, and we can array them onto our product, which gets slotted into a satellite and um, then launched into space. So the, the part of the system that is the electronics and the propellant supply, that's all traditional manufacturing. And it's things that people have already solved the problem on how to scale up uh, cost effectively. Okay. Within the thruster chip, which for us probably uh, for other propulsion providers would best be parallelized to the thruster, what they would call a thruster head, um, the techniques that we're using in there are um, piggybacked off of the microelectronics industry, which produces billions, trillions of components every year. And so using the same tools, the same design techniques, um, and um, the ability to tap into that existing supply base and just, you know, turn a knob that says instead of making 10, make 10,000 um, and watch the cost go down by a factor of 10,000, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. We knew that we could produce at scale for much less. The thruster heads of other technologies, certain aspects of them can be scaled because they do use a lot of traditional machining processes but some of those components have very delicate materials that you know you have to be very careful when you do produce them 
And there are people trying to innovate around that, bringing in automated manufacturing and such. But uh, really, the cost is, I think, going to be very difficult to bring down on those technologies. So how many have you how many have you made so far? Uh, I wish I knew the answer to that. Of those little penny sized things. Uh, it's definitely in the multiple hundreds, um, if not breaking a thousand at this point. Um, wow, it's tough to that's say. That's a ton for space. Yeah, I started as a grad student working on manufacturing for this, so uh, the quality and manufacturing records then are not the same as what we've set up eventually at Axion as a business. Um, so I would have to go in and pull from databases to say, but, um, we're, we're currently working, uh, with outside suppliers to ramp up our production and, and start building them in the, uh, probably at the same or maybe slightly higher rate than we have been working on it more at the small scale. Uh, but the cost is going to go down dramatically. I have a, a context question, um, because of the ability to reduce costs that this is, playing into the the emergence of like greater um more and greater numbered constellations so small sats like for example um like one one web recently kind of going through bankruptcy proceedings but that con the, that ip and other parts will probably live on in some other form and spacex starlink um emerging more and more um what what do you feel is axion's um sort of role and responsibility in terms of like the, the Kessler syndrome and, and perhaps explaining that for our audience. Sure. Um, so I'm not an expert on Kessler syndrome, but I'll, I'll give it a, my best shot. Uh, and the idea is, so we have these things orbiting in space and um, they're going thousands of miles per hour and they're not all going in the same direction or along the same path. And so sometimes those paths cross and they can collide. Um, we have to deal with space junk, space debris in general when, you know, something fails initially or fails eventually and is going to take tens, hundreds, or thousands of years to come down and burn up in Earth's atmosphere. Uh, but when we have a collision in space, that generates um, many more pieces that are now flying around and spreading out. And when you have more pieces, you have a higher probability that another collision is going to happen. And uh, Kessler syndrome is essentially a situation where you have so many pieces that um, the rate at which collisions happen goes up, I want to say exponentially, um, until it pro it's probably a logistic curve, but that's too many details. Um, uh, it goes up exponentially at a certain point and you, in essence, ruin parts of the space environment for people to put new items or operate in in general because the chance of collision is just so high and over time these clouds of debris spread out and so it only gets worse and you get it into a, get into a situation where if you don't have a way of cleaning it up which is an extremely difficult problem um you have to wait tens of thousands of years for the situation to get better um and we want to avoid that at all at all costs um, it's a long wait it is a long wait. And would that mean for that would mean that getting through low Earth or orbit from Earth would be effectively impossible for um, a manned mission and perhaps even unmanned? I I don't know that I can say impossible because I haven't really looked into what it would take to go through a debris cloud. Certainly, you know, something like the space shuttle, the space station, um, manned space vehicles in general are dealing with micro debris all the time. Um, so really it, 
probably depends on the nature of that debris. Big chunks are going to be an issue. If we can track them on radar, then we can try to avoid them. But at a certain point, there's just too many to avoid, and so you have to have, I suppose, armored spacecraft. Maybe it does become impossible from a safety standpoint. Um, but our responsibility as Axion, um, well, when you see these constellations of satellites, uh, constellation being a group of satellites that perform a mission together, uh, going up that are hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of satellites, um, it really is just increasing the probability of a collision. And collision avoidance is where we can help. The international field of satellites has some agreements about uh, what can be done in space. In the U.S., we have regulations around um, ensuring that when you launch a satellite, it's going to uh, either be up in a graveyard orbit or burn up in the Earth's atmosphere within, I want to say it's 25 years from when the mission of the satellite ends. And the FCC is currently um, considering additional regulations around maneuverability. Maneuverability is extremely important for collision avoidance. Um, we can track these objects in space on radar, and predictively we can say, hey, these two objects are going to approach one another five days from now. Uh, five days, I think, is the standard for when we give people a heads up that their satellite is going to have a close approach with another object. Um, that's that's a stressful week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never been part of that, but I imagine so. Yeah. Um, and so, if you're talking about you know a hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars satellite in space uh, that has propulsion on it, it has maneuverability. It can make some changes over the course of those five days to. Um, increase the separation at that uh, conjunction event, I think that's what they're mm -hmm. called, um, and reduce the probability that a collision will occur. Because we don't know exactly how close they're going to get. They're going to get within some distance. Um, the problem becomes when you have these lower-cost satellites where um, they tend to be smaller, and one of the big problems for maneuverability is that propulsion technologies for small satellites are... Um, not well developed and that's that's where we're trying to help fill the gap um so you may end up with a satellite that doesn't have propulsion and so its maneuverability options are um either none or it can do something funky like rotate its angle of attack in the low drag environment to try and shift itself out of the way um and then there are of course non-propulsive maneuvering options um i think they really fit into a different category of propulsion still but you wouldn't think of them as a rocket, let's say. They're not rockets. Um, and those are, I would say, probably not the right solution. Um, so we're working, we've worked on we, a product and have available a product that takes up um, half a U of a, a spacecraft, U being the, the one liter unit in CubeSats. All right, can you explain that a little bit? CubeSat uh, is a standard that came out, I want to say, in the late 90s. Uh, early 2000s um, for the dimensions, size, interfaces of very small satellites, um, the smallest being a cube that's one liter, uh, 10 centimeters on a side, uh, and then some larger uh, agglomerations of those cube units, uh, each one of those being a unit, so a 1U or a 3U, which is about the size of a loaf of bread, um, a 6U, 12U, and it goes on until people start talking about numbers of U's that really are silly. Um, so and and for these U's, can you stack them in any direction, or do they just have to be like <laughs> in a big um, long line? Hey, you know you, you can, can have design, a 
12-use snake satellite. You can design whatever you want. Uh, you're going to limit yourself on who's going to launch it for you, uh, depending on that shape. Uh, but most people go with standard shapes of you know just a cube, three cubes in a line, uh, two lines of three cubes um, as a 6U, etc. Uh, and so with our half U unit, you can take up a small portion of your vehicle and still meet a maneuverability capability, um, not just one time, but multiple times you can do, uh, you know, half a meter per second maneuver in space, you know, really much smaller okay. than that given our technology. Um, but so you're that, talking 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by five centimeters, a little module, and then you can steer your satellite to safety when the time comes. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't take a lot to increase the distance between you and a satellite that you're going to collide with. It, it could take just a few hours of, of running the system, and you're going to add hundreds of meters of separation distance. Um, and that's important for making sure that, um, you know, let's say um, MIT puts up a very small satellite and uh, it's going to collide with a very expensive asset or a set of very expensive assets owned by, let's say, SpaceX. They're not necessarily putting things in the same orbit, but maybe. Um, this, let's say it's a $250,000 MIT satellite is now threatening a $10 billion um, cost Starlink network with billions of dollars of future revenue uh, allocated to it. You definitely, if you're SpaceX, you don't want that threat from a you know a small university institution. So providing maneuverability to those smaller guys um, is mm -hmm. is I think critical for the future, and ensuring that those bigger players who have all that money and are putting up that expensive uh, architecture are at the same time also providing maneuverability. I think they are much more incentivized to think about it because of uh, the value behind their system. They want to make sure they're not you know, ruining their own place to play and that they're not uh, ruining it for other people who have billions of dollars invested as well. Um, so maneuverability, um, there's a lot of ways to do it. Uh, propulsion is probably the most um, effective way. And it is, as we are proof, uh, becoming affordable from a size, weight, power, and cost standpoint for anybody putting a satellite into space. Uh, and I think that our astronauts and cosmonauts on the International Space Station will be very thankful uh, if you're able to move out I'm of the sure. way of them as your satellite <laughs> drops through their orbit. The size and like the dimension of of what Axon is building is small, like penny size. Um, but the the system complexity that it's sort of subsidizing or feeding into is really great. As a company, and more more specifically, as and. Uh, this is at the end of the day, it's people that are working on this. What did what did you and Natalia like think in terms of how we're going to decide to to work together and how do we figure out who we need to bring on board to help us? Because this is a it's a big vision, um, very complicated systems that you're working on. Sure. Uh, so Natalia and I are both um, technical co-founders, right? We both came out of the MIT Space Propulsion Lab uh, just after she finished her uh, PhD, and I left my work on my PhD to work full-time at the company. And um, building a team is probably the most important part of succeeding as a company. Um, your idea doesn't get done without good people, uh, no matter how good of an idea it is. Uh, and 
So we have approached recruiting and finding the right people over the years um, in a few different ways. I think we've learned a lot definitely about managing of people once they're already on board. But finding the right people, um, my personal look at it is that I want to see someone who shows passion for the things that they're working on. So if, if I can see someone who, uh, sure, you know, they're meeting a lot of the um, requirements around, you know, skill set and knowledge, but even if they don't meet all of those, that they show that they're excited to work on what we're working on. They're excited about the long-term vision of the company. They're excited about the day-to-day -day work of the company. Um, and they have demonstrated in either their schoolwork, their professional work, their personal life, that when they set their mind to something, they really achieve results. Uh, so looking at portfolios of hobbies or um, projects that they can share from prior work, uh, class projects that they did as an undergraduate, their thesis work as a grad student. Um, if I see that passion and that um, stick-to-itiveness, I know that they're going to be a huge asset for our team because they're going to bring that energy and passion to solving the problems that we have. Um, finding those people can be difficult. Um, uh, relying on your personal network is always um, a good way to go because it helps with vetting people from the start. Uh, if you can associate yourself with um, hardworking, passionate, successful people, they probably know other people who are the same way. Um, and we rely on, uh, at the higher level, sort of the managerial company strategy level on our, who our investors know, who our advisors know. Um, and we rely a lot on our employee base to say like, hey, you know, at my last job, I was working with this person and I think they would be perfect for this role that we've set up. And uh, that makes it tough sometimes to... Uh, not be too insular. You know, if everyone's being hired out of the same network, you may end mm -hmm. up with a lot of people who kind of think the same or act the same. So making sure that as you're doing this, you're being cognizant of trying not to slide down that slope of everyone's from the same background. Um, and we're trying very hard to do that here at Axion. Um, and I think, uh, opening multiple recruiting channels has helped with that. So you've talked about a lot about the, um, you know, early on there was a lot of demand for a technology like this. You've talked about how, oh yeah, it's, you know, it's pretty simply scalable. Uh, you've talked a little bit about the, the tough challenges with, um, you know, finding the right people. Um, but we haven't really delved into like what is so tough you know, about your technology, like you make it sound like it's just so easy. We make these thrusters and they're perfect and people want to buy them. Like what's, um, what's the biggest challenge of getting these things to market? And is this uh, something yeah. I can do in my basement? <laughs> <laughs> insert, insert rocket science joke here, um, is the, is the probably default answer. Uh, so what makes it tough? Um, you know, from a, uh, first order, science level, I wouldn't say that, you know, the idea of a rocket and how to move things around in space is extremely difficult. Um, what we deal with, the hard problems that we deal with is more around um, manufacturing what we want to manufacture and 
knowing what the right thing to make is. Uh, Electrospray is a very um, under-researched propulsion technology um, when you look at the whole picture of traditional propulsion. Uh, it's growing in popularity in the research community, but it means that um, we can't just say like, okay, here's the results we want and do some math. Here's the exact thing we should design and build. Um, so there is a lot of um, questions that come up when we operate our devices around, okay, what exactly is happening at the fundamental level? How can we tweak that? How can we get more runtime out of the devices, more thrust out of the devices, more efficiency out of the devices? Um, so we do a lot of work around um, using our engineering and science intuition um, and our fundamental principles understanding of what we believe is going on to guide uh, our iterative development of the technology. And I think that has helped a lot in um, sort of operationally how we design things and coming up with ways to make leaps forward in performance. Um, but I would say that at least historically, because that's I think something we're able to move into now that we have a bigger team more directly. Historically, a lot of the challenges have been around manufacturing. And in fact, um, Ion Electrospray itself has been enabled by uh, manufacturing and materials science approaches uh, and innovations. So coming up with the right material uh, for the thruster chips, the right material properties, and then ensuring that uh, whether we're making those uh, things in-house or getting them from out of house, that we have um, reliability and repeatability in that um, material and geometric result. Um, it's a constant struggle, uh, not only from uh, assessing whether or not we have reliability and repeatability uh, and figuring out how much does it matter, where does it matter, where should we focus those efforts, and then working with our suppliers, working with the tools that we have for manufacturing to try and improve those things. Uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about that and um, doing experiments to, to improve that. Um, I think that our materials and manufacturing um, teams are working probably on the broadest projects and some of the most complicated and frustrating projects within that. Sure. Um, so lots of hardcore science and engineering mixed with just balancing everything else to make, you know, the product marketable. Yeah, I mean, I think um, manufacturable. coming out of school, a lot of engineers and scientists will vastly underestimate how much effort has to go into supplier relations, uh, defining mm -hmm. specifications and requirements for suppliers, um, monitoring quality, solving quality problems when your supplier doesn't have the experience um, to solve them for you. Uh, and then uh, sometimes you find amazing suppliers and leveraging that relationship to be mutually beneficial and understand what it is they're providing you, whether it's a, a full assembly that you're buying or a raw material that you're buying or somewhere in between, how you can work together to uh, grow the business and uh, have a successful outcome. Uh, they don't teach you that in school, at least not the schools that I went to because I didn't go to uh, not a manufacturing engineer or uh, a business person uh, by training. So um, that's that's stuff that a lot of people are learning on the job. When you when you were becoming a uh, when you were an incoming grad student, uh, did you have in your head somewhere like 
I, I, I'd like to, to try to create a company around some sort of technology. Was that seed there or, or was that, or was there some other story that helped it emerge? Uh, for, for me, it was not there. I, I did not go into uh, school at any point thinking like, Oh, I want to start a company. I want to become an entrepreneur. Um, I want to say that entrepreneurship in general has become, I want to say a bigger, more noticeable part of the culture of the United States, at least um, starting since probably I was like a senior in high school, it's just been on the rise. Um, uh, but it wasn't something that was uh, a career path that I even really thought was an option. Uh, and then in grad school, when the concept of starting a company came up, um, that's when I started getting introduced to that whole side of business and realizing and uh, more so being uh, exposed to options there. I think my co-founder Natalia um, was much more in tune with that um, coming from Duke where she did her master's. She had started a, a company there uh, and so she had already gone through some of a, a founder's journey and had an interest in entrepreneurship um, and you know, led the charge, I would say, for our team in, in making Axion happen as a business uh, and fell very nicely into our CEO role um, and has been doing a, a great job ever since uh, working on the CEO role. And she's, uh, I think, very interested in having more of the technology side in her role going forward. Um, she is a, a technical co-founder, so having more of that in her daily life, I think, is something she looks forward to. Uh, and I can't wait to see the impacts that she's going to have on the technology side because um, she's done such good work for us on the fundraising and hiring and building out yeah. an organization. Hey, we'd love to have you, you back, back, have you both on the show, um, you know, down the road. It'd be and to, under, to understand the, the dynamics because um, when, when creating a company on a project, what, no matter whether it's, it's a tough technology or, or starting a hair salon, for example, when you have that partner um, that it, you must have experienced some of those like really difficult challenges that you were facing together and that if you weren't both you know, standing like shoulder to shoulder facing forward, that it, it could have fallen apart. Have there been some times over the past five or so years where it's like, you know what, this, like people are telling us like, this is, this is too big of a project. Like we should, maybe we should, maybe I feel like quitting, but you didn't. Um, I wouldn't say that there's ever been, um, at least in my experience with Axion, pressure from the outside saying like, oh, it's not going to work out, you know, give up. Um, it's definitely, you know, any company that you look at, that's no matter how well it's doing, your perception of it from the outside is very different from the experience that the, the founding team or the, the, the employees are going through. It's definitely a roller coaster. So, uh, for me personally, there's plenty of times where it was very frustrating and, uh, you know, demotivating things would happen. And it's just like, uh, how much work is it going to take, you know, to, to succeed and to keep going? Like, I'm tired. I just want to, you know, retire to my farm and hang out there, you know, <laughs> with some, with some, you know, cute sheep or something. Uh, but Jonathan's on a farm right now. I should say like, yep, did it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, But uh, those moments pass. uh, And uh, I think that the the thing that gets me through those moments is thinking about the long-term vision of the company, really sitting back and reflecting on 
how cool it is that I get to work on what I'm working on uh, and be appreciative of, um, of that, regardless of how well things go or don't go, you know, stepping back, like things are going to be okay. Nothing is ever really the end of the world. Um, and uh, the moments pass. Uh, and it's a, a really good moment to re-energize yourself around the mission of the company and the reason that you're, you're there doing what you are doing. And on the side of, you know, having a co-founder, I think Natalia and I work really well together in that, um, in a lot of ways, we're both very ineffable, uh, and are able to let, you know, scary things roll off our back in a lot of ways. Uh, and that we're always very honest with you, with each other and, uh, I don't think we have any big moments of having like clashed heads and, you know, really fought over anything. Um, we always want to achieve the long-term mission of bringing advanced technologies to improve the space industry and, and give access to uh, as many people as possible and make humanity a more space-present uh, species. And the day-to-day decisions that have to be made, the day-to-day work that has to be done, um, it isn't always, let's say, obvious what the right decision is, but when you have the right motivation behind it, um, it's hard to get upset and disagree because you're, you're facing the same direction. Do you feel that space will remain the, the laboratory and domain of nation states and that the sort of private commercial sector influences is it's present, but still quite a ways off from what we may be um, hearing in the media. Um, I don't think that it will remain the domain of nation states. Uh, the timeline is of course, I think the thing to really argue about like when is, when is what going to happen and how quickly, um, we're already seeing commercial companies, um, I think SpaceX being the obvious you know, flagship company that anyone will go to, um, but plenty of others, uh, showing that it is possible to get out there and achieve the same things that um, governments are achieving, uh, cheaper and perhaps with different motivations. Um, the... There's certainly way more resources outside of the earth than there are on the earth, uh, real estate, natural resources, etc., um, to be taken advantage of. Earth is, of course, our home and the only place that we were really um, uh, evolved to naturally thrive in. And so it makes those other places uh, less attractive. So bridging the gap between when we are poking our presence out into essentially low Earth orbit and really putting communities of people out into the solar system or uh, large sets of, you know, for example, resource harvesting tools out into the solar system. Bridging that gap, I don't know what it's going to look like or how long it's going to take. Um, A lot of the fundamental problems for people still exist around protecting them from radiation, living in space for a long time. But I think a lot of that will accelerate with the commercial involvement 
Um, and the focus, at least on the commercial side, the earth focus on the commercial side, I think is the right way to go because right now that's where all of the funding is. <laughs> there's no, uh, there's no customers on the moon, no customers on Mars yet. Uh, and so if you're going to have a space business right now, it needs to serve the earth and you can then, uh, just like any other company in history, if you're serving the earth and making a profit, you can invest that into the future of creating new marketplaces, um, and new business ventures. You know, a lot of people, um, like to look at going out into space, uh, the same as the European continent going out into the oceans and in, of the world and, um, finding quote unquote, discovering quote unquote, new places. Um, there's of course a lot of ugly history involved with that. Um, and that I don't think, uh, we have to repeat going out into space. Uh, but a lot of the same, sort of economic parallels exist around finding resources that are unclaimed and relying on the economy of where you came from to make those resources valuable until in the future, a whole new economy emerges outside of that location and becomes self-sustaining. Are there any components of your thrusters that can be created from resources from other places? Uh, I've thought about that to some degree. Um, and I, and I wouldn't say that I've thought about it or analyzed it enough to talk with much certainty. Um, the thruster chip itself is made up of uh, mostly uh, silicon and silicon oxide materials. Um, so certainly there's a lot of that out in the world uh, or out in, out in space. Um, and we can probably come up with ways to use other materials to do some of the same things. Uh, setting up manufacturing in space might, you know, be the real challenge. Uh, <laughs> um, the rocks are there, but you need you need to do something with them. Uh, what what about as, your propellant? Yeah, the propellant is is probably the more interesting one, in that it is uh, a consumable. Um, we have a uh, organic and inorganic uh, salt as our propellant. It's a molten salt, and I've looked at some. Uh, prevalence graphs of different elements in the solar system and they're not too a lot of the elements in our propellant are not too far down the list so it is very feasible to me that they could be um, made from in-situ resources uh, again the, setting up the manufacturing would be uh, the challenge one of the coolest things uh, about the concept of doing that is these propellants don't evaporate in space so, you know, if you had a nice clean crater, uh, you could pour the propellant into that as a pool uh, and sort of, you know, treat it like a, a lake of propellant that you could pump from. Um, the idea of using, you know, looking at our competitors' propellants, you know, and how easy those are to come by, uh, noble gas propellants are going to be difficult uh, mm -hmm. just in a collection standpoint, um, but I think they exist to some degree, the, you know, the higher mass ones are less common um, is my basic understanding. And then uh, people who claim to use water as a propellant, uh, I think is a very compelling idea. Uh, water is going to be one of the most valuable resources in space. So it's kind of like um, saying, you know, we want to use our most valuable resource to just lose it for millions <laughs> of years, probably. Um, 
but it is it is somewhat abundant and uh, interesting to use. You know, if someone can come up with ways of using the more common elements, uh, iron, nickel, uh, silica, carbon, things like that, um, if I'm rattling those off at all correctly, uh, they would they would have a lot of propellant out there. But those are some pretty difficult things to use as propellant. Um, how many satellites right now have your thrusters? Like, are they are they flying around up in space right now? Uh, fewer than I would like uh, is the answer right now. Uh, we sent up uh, a set of thrusters on a satellite. Uh, gosh, now I want to say it was back in late 2018. Um, unfortunately, that satellite never communicated with the ground, so we never got to mm. even try to turn them on. Um, it was part of a, a SpaceX launch of a lot of CubeSats, um, and a very large fraction of them did not ever establish operations. Um, so that was, uh, I would chalk it up to bad luck. Um, and we've had, we had a few launches scheduled um, in 2020 uh, that have gotten some delays due to the pandemic, um, mm -hmm. but we still expect a launch to go up in the September, October timeframe with operational deployment in December. And then another one is I think scheduled in January. Um, yeah. So we've had, we've had a rocky history with um, reliability of launch dates and uh, things, you know, not, not, um, or things being canceled. Um, I'm still waiting for that Mars rover to launch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Do we need more launch pads or what? 10 days. <laughs> But uh, through MIT, um, the technology, uh, you know, when I worked on it as a grad student, we had a launch. And uh, since then, there's been some more launches of the technology. Um, I can't go into much of the details of how that went, but um, I would say that, you know, Axion is still pursuing things. So the results are probably good in space. Uh, and so we look forward a lot to getting some flight data, um, fingers crossed that the satellites are reliable and turn on and operate. Uh, and we can show some nice graphs of, uh, satellites rotating and changing altitude. What do you, what's your opinion on a very low earth orbit and, and what the potential for sort of not quite, it's like higher than airplanes, lower than a typical satellite, maybe even air breathing, uh, propulsion systems. What kind of opportunities are there? Uh, there's definitely a lot of people interested in very low uh, Earth orbit. The main thing being um, better image resolution and uh, lower latency on RF, or I don't think you have to worry too much about laser, but RF communications um, is the, the one where you get a lot of the benefits, I think. Um, propulsion is extremely important there just to counteract the drag of that environment. Um, I suppose there are probably plenty of ideas where the satellites are being put there for temporary missions. Um, I could imagine uh, some temporary low-cost science missions that need to happen, disaster monitoring relief. You know, if you have a, a wildfire that you don't expect to last more than weeks or, or months that you want to be monitoring, you don't have to have a satellite that lasts 10 years. So uh, those kinds of applications are compelling. Um, Air breathing propulsion is something that people have talked a lot about, um, but and it's not something that I've personally worked on um, in any way, but it is definitely challenging to get um, the thrust levels that people want at that altitude. The, the trade-off between how much drag you're experiencing and how much you can really 
how much momentum you can really impart from the uh, ambient. Uh, I don't know that it looks amazing. Uh, so you really need to have uh, the thrust to power trade-off is not great, I guess, is a way of summarizing it. You're putting a lot of power into not getting a lot of thrust. But if you have the power, which um, you know is becoming more and more available uh, over time, then and it's you know free power, quote unquote, from the sun um, or from microwave lasers on the ground or something, <laughs> uh, then why not do it? Um, I just don't know that there's all that many fantastic um, engine designs that uh, people really want to build into their satellites. Um, but there's some cool ideas out there that um, don't take my word for how good or, or not good they are. I would say look into it. Um, Do you have advice for, for someone who's been, uh, whether it's um, a technology in it or team who's coming from like a pristine lab or um, the uh, gentleman or a gentlewoman who's uh, in like an improvised workshop in their bedroom who are building building a, a cool technology and considering commercializing it. Do you have some advice to maybe, maybe the past you? If you're coming out of a laboratory uh, and trying to sort of stand up an operation yourself, um, it's way more work and way more expensive than you probably realize. Uh, the amount of resources that you're relying on in a laboratory environment um, is very high. And establishing the same ease of access and quality of things uh, is a lot of work. At the same time, you have a lot of flexibility as to what you do and don't establish and when you choose to do so. So making sure you really think through a lot of that um, ahead of time and tap into resources that you have as far as people that you know on how to go about establishing those facilities and, and capabilities yourself the right way. Um, because, you know, I, I know much more now than I used to about setting up my own lab and, and manufacturing. Um, but a lot of the lessons learned along the way were difficult and expensive. Um, so making sure that, uh, you're, you're tapping experts where you can, um, to help you set up things the right way. Uh, for the long term. Um, and you can't always do things the right way because of resource constraints, but do the best you can. Um, and also remember that not all advice is good advice. Uh, it's just advice. So making sure that you get second opinions and that you analyze things um, and don't be worried about like going against what someone said just because you're like, oh, well, they're going to see what I set up and they're going to see that I didn't do what they said. Don't worry about that. Do what's the right thing for you and your company. If you're coming out of a garage, you probably have a good idea of how hard that stuff is to do on your own. Um, so that's not the advice you need. Um, I think that coming out of both situations, it's important to realize that doing something in your garage and making it work and doing something in a lab and showing that it works once or maybe you're showing that it works repeatedly is very different from setting up a business around it. Um, businesses have to have margin and businesses have a commitment to customers around quality and reliability. Um, your customer wants a positive experience when they work with, I'm going to assume it's hardware uh, or really just call it your product, but they want a positive experience and you want to make sure that you're providing a positive experience because they're where your money comes from um, in the long term. So making sure that you understand 
what it takes to um, scale up manufacturing, provide um, a good customer interface, um, figure out, talk to your customers and figure out like, hey, if I was going to deliver you this product, what would you expect from me? Create a list of documents that they want to see, um, pieces of information that they're going to need in order to make a decision to buy your product. Um, don't just assume that like, I know there's a market and I built this thing five times um, and so people are going to buy it. Well, did you build it five times and they all came out exactly the same? Uh, did you build it five times and they all turned on the first time you turned them on and you didn't have to tweak them at all? And you figured mm -hmm. out how you're going to ship them and how you're going to have regulation, you know, meet all the regulations yeah. you might not realize. There's a lot of stuff that businesses have to do that an experimentalist and a hobbyist and inventor never thinks about. So talk to people who've done it before uh, in adjacent, similar things. Hey, maybe even hire those people uh, and you'll, you'll start to do better. Sage awesome. advice from someone who's done it before. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're coming up on the hour. Um, is there anything else you want to share with the audience? Uh, let's see. I mean, I think that people who are interested in some of the, some of the more detailed stuff around our technology should should definitely look into it. Um, you can find uh, some resources online. Uh, you, know, you can go to our website and see some things. We're working on uh, providing more info on our website. Uh, I didn't get too much into the actual fundamentals of uh, electric propulsion and how electrospray is, is different. Uh, we'll save that for episode cool two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and, you know, a lot of that stuff isn't too pertinent to the business. It, it's sort of the conclusions that come out of that that, that drive the business forward. Um, I would encourage people to uh, check out who we're hiring for. You know, if you're interested in tough tech uh, and in, in working on um, our vision for going into space and making it more awesome, uh, we've got careers posted on our website. So definitely go there. Um, check out our social media uh, at Axion Systems. Um, and uh, yeah, if, if you see me out and about when we're all allowed to leave our homes and, and shake hands again one day, uh, feel free to, to chat with me. Well, thank you very much for, for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Uh, it was great. Uh, glad to be here. I always like talking about this stuff. Uh, thank you so much, Lewis. In two weeks, we talk with Katie Person of the MIT Innovation Initiative, and we learn about the balancing act that tough tech entrepreneurs face when they work with the private sector and governments as clients. Please comment, subscribe, and share the show with a friend. Thank you so much.